If you were here late last week and didn't get a handout, or if you weren't here and want a handout, I've got about 10 copies up here on the front, which you can acquire uh, once we are through tonight. Uh, Russ Terman has arranged to record the rest of the lessons, the last six lessons, and so if, if this little machine works right, uh, it will be available on the church's website as a podcast, and so you can uh, access it that way if you happen to miss one. And I hope everybody has one of the handouts tonight. The second page may be as important as the front and back, which is the words to a firm foundation, which is sort of the uh, subtitle, the subtext of this whole study that we're doing. And what I, I changed it a little bit from last week. I've, I've given all five verses to the, the hymn, but at the top, there are scriptures from which the ideas of the poem are taken. One of the things that, that I want to impress you with is that this 18th century hymn is full of scripture. The, the, hymn, the older hymns tend to show such a breadth and depth of scripture that it's surprising. And so just uh, at your leisure, you can take a look at how these passages of scripture convey the ideas that, are, that, that we'll sing just in a minute. <clears throat> Last week, we talked about how to fall in love with the Bible, uh, with the idea that the reason people keep after something and grow in it and desire it is that they fall in love with it. And tonight, we want to look at sort of a comparative religions study. We're going to look at the Bible and why should we consider the Bible scripture when other books that claim to be scripture are not? Or should we? Or what is involved in that whole question? And I want to start by asking, what is truth? Or what is the truth? If somebody goes into a court of law and is to take the witness stand and they raise their right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Does anybody have any negotiation about what that means? Is that clear to everybody what, what the witness is expected to say? Tell it as he understands it. As he understands it. Well, it's interesting Alan should put it that way because it, it, it is actually a generational thing about how you define truth. Those over 40 tend to be pretty traditional. Truth is an accurate description of what happened, of what exists, of what is. But those under 40 tend to say, well, Truth is your perception of truth. It's what's meaningful to you. It's personal, personal truth, subjective instead of objective truth. Alan's not under 40. Alan is not under 40. I know that, that, that just doesn't, that doesn't fit at all. Now, of course, relativistic truth doesn't work very well 
in the real world. I once gave a quiz to one of my classes, class of seniors, multiple choice quiz, and it was over their homework reading from the night before. So when we got ready to grade it in class, I said, first question, read the question, said, how many put A? How many put B? We went through all four choices. I said, okay, majority vote. Okay, that's the answer. Graded the whole quiz that way. Well, of course, the ones who answered according to what the book said weren't too happy if the majority answered the other way, and that was... I told them the quiz didn't count, but I was making the point that relativistic truth just doesn't work very well in the real world. Now, things can be relative. Things grow and they wear out and they get old and they break and our hair turns gray or falls out and culture changes. Uh, I understand that at the beginning of the 20th century, women weren't supposed to show their ankles or what's common community morality changes or attitude about slavery, about the role of women is not the same now as it was. So, so think, there are things that are relative, but that's not truth. The truth. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That sounds not very subjective. We're going to look at some more statements from Scripture before we move into sort of a comparative study of the four questions that are on your, on your uh, sheet. But first, let's sing How Firm a Foundation. These words that, if we will allow them to speak to us, form the solid foundation in which we stand. Mm -hmm. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? Fear not, I am with you, oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you in trouble to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. 
When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be my supply. The flame will not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to impose. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I never, no, never, no, never forsake. These four questions, I think, are helpful in uh, guiding our thoughts about how the Bible compares with other religious books. Jesus is introduced in the Gospel of John as the one who came from the Father, Father full of grace and truth. And then at the end of that introduction, John says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Later in that Gospel, Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. So this whole thing about truth in, in a time when much of our culture thinks truth is relative, it's important to, to talk about the setting of the Gospel of John and all the New Testament for that matter. Uh, as you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. And to the Greeks, truth meant what in reality is there. It's an accurate description of what is there. It's objective. Doesn't make any difference whether you perceive it that way or not. That's what it is. And when John is using the term truth in the New Testament, he's using it objectively. So when Jesus talked about the truth, he wasn't describing something that depends on the person to take it in. Frequently in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he'll introduce something by saying, I tell you the truth. That's the verily, verily of the King James Version. I tell you the truth. It's to underscore what he's about to say. It's for them to pay particular attention. And so when Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, was talking to the people in Rome, where he says, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth. And then he quotes from Isaiah, the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth. An objective use of the term. The beginning of the uh, letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, the law of Moses is the embodiment of the truth. Again, referring to the Old Testament, not just the words of Jesus, not just the content of the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. Frequently, the Christian message is called the truth, the content of the gospel in describing the information that Christians believed in several of Paul's letters. James, 
And chapter 1 says that Christians received new birth by means of the word of truth. First Peter, in both of his letters, talks about the truth. And so does John in his three short letters. So Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels all the way through the letters, the idea of the truth is the same, and it's used in the way that the Greeks would have understood it, would have used it as something that is objective, not subjective. It describes what exists apart from perception, apart from any person. So these four questions that I want to look at in the second half of the lesson will be primarily answering number one. We're not going to give an answer to number one until we go through all of them, but just want to talk about what's involved in that. First question, is the Bible alone among religious writings in being the written expression of the will of God? It's an important question because fewer than 50% of the people in the world look to the Bible as Scripture, as the words of God. So taken from that perspective, we are in the minority in terms of people who look for Scriptures. Hinduism, so the first item on your list there, Hinduism uh, starts with the Vedas. The Vedas are so old that nobody knows exactly where they originated or when or by who, but they're priestly regulations, talk about sacrifices and, and uh, written in, a, uh, in an obscure language. But Hinduism is also the religion of the two longest epic poems in the world, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, talk about uh, Hindu views of life and philosophy, and the last part of the uh, Mahayana is called the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of the Lord, and it's a, a scene in which uh, Krishna, one of, the, one of the avatars, shows up and counsels that no matter what else is involved in the world, the most important thing is for you to do your dharma. Just whatever position you are assigned in life, do your dharma, nothing else. So there are plenty of scriptures, if you want an alternative, or in Buddhism. Buddhism has the Tripitaka, literally three baskets, because they literally kept their scriptures in baskets. Uh, sutras, which include the sermons, uh, parables, sayings of Buddha, and things that are attributed to him, descriptions of his life, uh, as well as uh, insights into the Buddhist way of thought. The Quran, which uh, we hear more about these days, the scriptures of Islam, are said to be the literal words of God kept in eternity in heaven and revealed to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. And the words of the Quran are supposed to be exact and precise and correct down to the punctuation marks. And it's in Arabic, so God speaks Arabic. And you, it, to, to read the Quran in a translation is like having a commentary on it. Uh, well, I'll talk more about the uh, Quran 
just in a minute. In addition to the Quran, you've also got the Hadith, which is a description of how, Mo, how uh, Muhammad ate, uh, what he wore, uh, what he looked like. And so in some very conservative Muslim circles, people try to dress, eat, look just like Muhammad did because it's in the Hadith. And then in addition, you have Sharia. There's not just one Sharia. Uh, there are different variations based on culture. And so there are, when, when people say Sharia, it, it doesn't always mean the same thing to everybody. But uh, in addition to world religions, uh, the Mormons use the King James Bible, but then the Mormons also have their own. I just ran across uh, copies of a couple of Mormon books today. It's just, just for point of interest, if you're curious, I'll put them up front. The Book of Mormon, not the Broadway play, but, but the, the real thing, uh, is, is laid out uh, very much like the King James Version. It has its double columns. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's the original revelation, uh, supposedly, from the golden tablets. And then in addition, they have the, the uh, Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price with those, as well as continuing revelation. Uh, the Mormon doctrine has been revised several times in the last 200 years because they get these convenient revelations to say, oh, it's time to change. And usually it goes along with either the federal government is about to get them in trouble with some kind of law or culture has changed. But, but anyway, that's, uh, that's the, the Mormon approach. Uh, and in, in Christianity, you've got some uh, variety as well. The Roman Catholic Church accepts the 14 books of the Apocrypha, which you'll find bound between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, these were never considered scripture by the Jews. By the way, the Apocrypha is all Jewish subject matter or, or characters or concerns, but the Jews never accepted these books as scripture. And they were never officially Christian scripture until the 16th century uh, when the Catholic Church and the Council of Trent declared that they were scripture. Some groups accept what are called apocryphal gospels. Have you heard of the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Judas, or the Gospel of Peter? There are others, and there are other books that are a part of that apocrypha. They are a little bit strange. Um, one of them, Alan, you may, you may remember, I've forgotten which one, tells, uh, tries to fill in the gaps for the, of the childhood of Jesus. You know, the, the Gospels after the, the naming of Jesus, he's at the temple at the age of 12, and then we don't know anything until he's 30. But, but these apocryphal gospels try to fill in what's missing. So uh, one of them has Jesus playing with his friends, four or five, six years old, <coughs> making mud pies. You know how kids, remember when you used to do that? Uh, kids don't do that much anymore, I don't think. But anyway, making mud pies. And Jesus made a clay pigeon and then waved his hands over it and it came to life and flew away and scared the kids and they all ran home crying. Well, that doesn't sound very much like the gospel, does it? But there, there are those books. They have been around. So uh, we'll come back to answer that question in the second half of, of the lesson. Any, any question or anything additional that anybody wants to say about that? 
just, just, just placing the Bible in the world of a variety of scriptures. Number two, is there truth in other religions besides Christianity? The obvious answer is yes, because human beings in other cultures who follow other religions are rational just like we are. They have minds, they can observe the world. And so there is truth to be discovered. What I would uh, say is that when the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies show his handiwork, day unto day they utter speech, night unto night they pour forth knowledge, there is no language or voice where they are not heard. What he's saying is, there is evidence about the majesty of God and His creation that's available to everybody. The thing is, to know about that God who made everything, you've got to have revelation from Him, and that's where the difference comes. To say that other religions have truth is not to say that they have saving <coughs> truth. Saving truth from the God who made us is a matter of His revelation. For example, Islam is as strong on the oneness of God as is possible to be. God is one and they have no doubt about it and He's the Creator and He determines everything. Hinduism is very much aware of the presence of God, the immediacy of God. Of course, they think he's in trees and rivers and, and everything, but, but, but the immediacy of God sounds just like Paul speaking to the Greeks in Acts 17 when he says, God has done all this so that we would search for him and reach out for him and perhaps find him, though he is not far from every one of us. That's truth that God is that close. Islam says He's as close as the vein in your neck. Buddhism correctly says that the core of our discomfort in the world is suffering, but suffering is defined as unrequited desire, desiring things that will never fill you up that will never satisfy you. And so Buddhism is quite detailed about the source of our discomfort in the world. That sounds just like Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, we look not at what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is passing away. What is unseen is eternal. That's true. The things in this world can never satisfy us, can never fill us up. Confucianism in the fifth century BC talked about filial piety. That is, love for your immediate family. Brotherly love is what it means, but what he was saying is in order to have a structured, orderly society, 
You've got to have mutual regard, trust, relationships that you can rely on. Well, of course that's true. But those truths are not saving truths. That's where we'll come to in a minute. Any additional thought to that question before we move on? You define a truth by where they agree with other faith, agree with Christian doctrine? Well, uh, it, it is Christian doctrine, but they, they just agree. I mean, that is an accurate description of the way life comes at you. It's what you learn by paying attention. It's what you can see by looking at the world around you. Number three, does God exclude certain groups or does he desire fellowship with all his creatures? Start with Genesis. Genesis says that God made human beings, all, everyone, in his image. There's a Jewish commentator named Nahum Sarna who says that out of everything God made, only in the case of human beings does he list the material he made them from, dust, is their personal contact, he breathed into the man the breath of life, and a stated purpose for their creation. Let us make the man in our image and so he made the male and the female in his image. Every human being is made in the image of God. Who does God love? He loves all of his creation. He loves every human being. That's a great contrast to the pagan ideas of human beings that were prevalent at the same time Genesis was being written. In the pagan view, human beings were to be used by the gods. In fact, they were used and abused by the gods. The gods were in control. They made the rules. They changed the rules if they wanted to, and all of their actions were motivated by selfish concerns. Never for the concern of the human beings because they weren't made in the image of those pagan gods. But God made us in his image. So there ought to be close connection. In fact, as you read the Bible, you get the idea that's what God had in mind, close connection. So the separation, the division between us and God is not God's fault. Go back and read the first chapter of James, verses 13 to 15, and he says as much. God doesn't cause anybody to sin. He's not tempted. He doesn't tempt. When you're tempted, it's your own evil desires. And temptation produces sin and sin produces death. We're separated from the God who made us, who intended to be in relationship with us, not by anything he has done, but our fault, our 
responsibility. It's our resistance to God. So what do we do? We've caused the rupture. We can't undo the past. Even doing our best, we can't always do the right thing. So here's the message of the Bible. What we can't do for ourselves, God has already done it. Whatever love, service, commitment we make toward God, it's step two. It's a response. God's initiative is to save us. These words are familiar to you. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. That's what the Bible means when it talks about the grace of God. Not by our works. Not by any good works that we have done. Titus 2 says very much the same thing. Anybody want to add something to that one? Question four. Where can you learn the details about Jesus, his teachings, and his way of life? You should know that there is information about Jesus from non-biblical sources. It's just that there's not a whole lot of information. The Quran calls Jesus by name 25 times. It refers to Jesus 180 times using terms like these. Messiah, prophet, son of Mary. He's never the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary, which is unusual in that culture. Uh, and Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. He's even referred to as the Spirit of God. He's a miracle worker. And so miracles of Jesus are described in the Quran, like ones that you read about in the Gospels. Also about Jesus making the clay pigeon and making it come to life and fly away. And he spoke as a baby. Spoke language. Arabic. I'm not sure about that. But he spoke as a baby. And it's pretty clear to see, Muhammad wrote 600 years after the time of Jesus. So it's pretty clear to see he had read one of the apocryphal gospels, or at least he knew a community who had read and taught from that apocryphal gospel. Um, in the Quran, however, Jesus is not the son of Joseph. He is not divine. He did not die by crucifixion. Somebody else did. Don't know who. But just, there was a substitute at the end. So, so you can learn a few things about the Quran, about Jesus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian who survived the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70 and lived in Rome for the rest of his life and wrote 
histories of the Jewish people explaining Judaism to the Roman world in a, in a series called Antiquities of the Jews, when he got to the reign of Pontius Pilate, he talked about Jesus. And he says Jesus was a miracle worker, that he was the Messiah. He refers to him as the Son of God. He died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate in the days of Tiberius, the second Roman Caesar. That's all you get from Josephus. But it's interesting that what he says corresponds with what the Gospels say. Two Roman historians writing uh, later, uh, 150 years or so later, one called Tacitus and the other called Suetonius, both were writing about the first 10 Roman emperors, writing their histories of their reign. Each one, when they came to the reign of Nero, explained that there was this big fire and Nero blamed a group called Christians. Well, so then they've got to explain who the Christians are. Well, these Christians followed this Messianic preacher in Palestine during the days of Tiberius the emperor, who was crucified as a criminal under Pontius Pilate. That's all you get, but at least these non-biblical sources say what the Gospels say about the nature of the death of Jesus and his ministry. It's not very much, is it? You add questionable information from the Quran, very brief references from Jewish and Roman historians, and you don't have much to go on. In other words, the answer to this question is the four Gospels are the only place you can go to learn the details about the ministry of Jesus, what he taught, what he did, what he called for in his followers. What does that mean? It means when we get to chapter 7, lesson 7, you got to know whether these documents are reliable or not. Can you trust them? Is this a firm foundation for basing your faith? For being in the world where there are multiple views, can you be confident that you have the information you need? So for the rest of the time, I want us to think about the Bible as God's completed self-revelation, the information that you can't get from observing nature, from looking at the way human beings exist in the world and cope with their problems. The Bible is intended to be exactly that document. So, Paul says in Romans 8, 3 and 4, God took the initiative in closing the gap in establishing the relationship. That's what the Bible is for, is to reestablish our relationship with our Creator. God did it, Paul says, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so, He condemned sin in sinful flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Nothing lacking 
and the righteousness that God requires of us when we are joined with Jesus, his son. The Bible describes that very process. And before I go any farther, I think it's important to say that leading up to what I have just said, some people hear that and say, you Christians are just saying your religion is better than mine. You just think you're better than I am. And if we ever communicate with that attitude, then we're wrong and we're placing a roadblock in front of the hearer. Think about the Jews for a minute. They're called God's chosen people. And, and a lot of people still refer to them as God's chosen people. What does that mean? Did it mean that that God thought they were the cream of the crop out of everybody on the face of the earth. And so he picked the cream of the crop to be his and to give them special favors and to give them a leg up and to make them exempt from, from things that, that the rest of the world had to go through. That's what a lot of people think when they hear, well, well they're God's chosen people. Listen to what Moses said to them. Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, but it was because the Lord loved you. Understand then that it was not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. What's he saying? He's saying the Jews didn't deserve what they got from God. God did it because he's God. God did it because it was a part of his plan for the entire world. And so Isaiah will say, God has made you a light to the nations. And Moses said in Deuteronomy that when you follow God's laws and live in the land and he blesses you, the other people will say, what a wise people they are because their God has given them his law. When God first called Abraham, he said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Through your descendants, all nations of the earth will be blessed. It was never exclusivistic and it was never because they were so special. Have you ever heard people in churches of Christ accused of think they're the only ones who are going to be saved? The first time I, I was in a discussion with somebody who, who made that observation to me, I, I used the, the thing that I had heard my dad say several times. He, he preached for over 50 years. His response was, what the sign says in front of the building it's not going to have anything to do with whether you're in heaven or not. Getting to heaven is on a completely different category. It's an entirely different kind of thing. So I mentioned to you last week 
the statement from Paul Little's book, Know Why You Believe, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. There's no pride of place. There is no saying, my religion is better than your religion. It's saying, we're looking for the saving truth that God brings into the world. Where is it and what is it and where can we find it? I mentioned the word apologetics last week, providing a reasoned defense of a system of belief, of a statement. Apologetics will not, cannot save somebody. The best that apologetics can do is remove barriers, provide insight, to give explanations, to make another mind open to, to listening. We have the words. We just need to encourage people to listen. Isn't that what John says at the end of his gospel? Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples than are written in this book. But these are written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Faith, belief, saving faith is based on reasons, evidence, logical thought. And so when Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you of the hope you have, he's not saying be ready to answer any question, any oddball off the wall question somebody can come up with to stump you. He doesn't say that you even have to provide a well thought out and detailed argument. All he says is be able to give reasons for the hope you have, be able to express your faith. And so part of what this series of studies with five more to go is about is just getting you ready. Be ready to give an answer. Just to be ready. This is especially sensitive in our culture because everything has to be politically correct and tolerance. To to tolerance is probably the single most regarded virtue in our culture right now. Would you agree? Tolerance. Problem is, what people call tolerance is usually indifference. And what people mean is, you go do your thing, let me do my thing, and just leave me alone. But that's not tolerance. That's indifference. Uh, there was an article in, in Christianity Today in 2011, uh, and it's called um, Proselytizing in a Multi-Religious World. I think that's the, the type. But anyway, proselytizing is, is the whole thing. But talking to other people about your faith. Just, yeah, people can't People can't even have a, a, a civil conversation about different faiths if all they think is, I've got to attack yours and defend mine, and it doesn't matter what you say. If two people are really looking for the truth, then it's different. But in this, in this uh, article, I was, 
especially taken with a comment from Penn Jillette. <clears throat> I mentioned his partner Taylor last week. Penn Jillette is the tall, big, dark-headed one. He is, he is a, an outspoken critic of Christianity, sometimes profane <clears throat> in his criticism. But in that article, here's what he said about people who aren't willing to express their faith. I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who believe that there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell, and you don't want to talk about it because it would make it socially awkward. He asks, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I thought it was a thought-provoking question. The burden isn't his. The burden is ours. We refer to the message of Jesus and salvation from sin as the gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news. Do we have good news to share with other people? Is it good news? If it's good news, shouldn't we be excited to have the opportunity to share it with somebody? What I want to affirm to you is that the Bible is the deposit of God's revelation telling us the means by which to restore relationship with our Creator. Everything else is not that. And so I would say to you that our attitude toward those who follow any of these other so-called scriptures should be the deepest sympathy, the deepest compassion, because they're being misled. Here's the definition of the gospel in that article on proselytizing. The gospel is the good news that God, who is more holy than we can imagine, looked with compassion upon people who are more sinful than we could possibly admit or even know, and sent Jesus into history to establish his kingdom and reconcile people and the world to himself. Jesus, whose love is more extravagant than we can measure, came to sacrificially die for us so that by his death and resurrection, we might gain through his grace what the Christian scriptures define as new and eternal life. If we believe that's what the Bible is, then we desperately need to know that the scriptures can be trusted. That's what all of this is about. 
but we'll get to the tests in five weeks.